Well, good morning. Good morning to all those of you who are here. We're getting a few more in as the regulations eased up a little bit. Um, and welcome to all of you who are worshiping with us online. We're glad you're here. If you want to put in a chat box or let us know somehow that you're watching and how many are watching with you. Maybe you've got a crowd. Maybe you're watching alone. Maybe you're watching from another country. We'd love to hear from you. It's good to see you all here, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God, right? And we know that to be true after a year of this, where we're still meeting with COVID in the wings and still struggling with so many things. My prayer for you is what we sang earlier, the Lord bless you and keep you during this time, because we have some light at the end of the tunnel, and we're all excited about that but it's always by God's spirit that he sees us through this. So let's stay attuned to him. And with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the word as we continue our worship. Uh, last week, we finished two weeks on the subject of humility. Humility. Because we're taking six weeks to look at one verse. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But I reversed that. We're going to go two weeks on each of those three requirements, starting with walking humbly with God, because I feel like that's the foundation that everything else is built out of, our relationship with God and realizing who we are in his presence and the awe which we just sang about, that he deserves from us, and that when we sit in his presence, we realize. So we finish with uh, the two weeks on humility, and if you miss those messages, I do encourage you to go back on our website and listen to them, and now we're studying two weeks on loving kindness. Now, that's not one word, loving kindness, like some people use it, but it's actually an action verb with a noun. We are to be people who love Kindness. We have to pursue it. We have to have it high in our priorities. And as we switch to that theme for the next two weeks, I want us to go to the New Testament. I'd like to read you a story from Jesus' encounters um, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It reads this way. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, meaning Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So it's a real short passage, but two events are happening here. We have the call of Matthew, who becomes now one of the 12 and a disciple of Jesus. But we also have a situation with Jesus in Matthew's home in which by both example and by word, he states really clearly what his mission is. And I want to look at both of these sections together. First, I want to look at Matthew's calling, and I want to do that a little bit more briefly. Um, it's important because this sets the context of what he's trying to communicate when he says his next piece and quotes from the Old Testament. 
So this sets the context for everything that he does. He calls a tax collector who's on duty at the time to be his disciple. Now this passage, as I studied it this week and prepared for this message, I was really impressed with the language in two ways, okay? Because this story is found in three of the Gospels. You know, the four, first four books of the Bible, we call them the Gospels. The Gospel according to uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are all four biographies of Jesus from the perspectives of those four people. Well, this story is found in three of those biographies. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the language differs in them, and I find it interesting in two ways. First of all, the book of Matthew. Now, maybe you're wondering in your mind, well, wait a minute, the guy who's called is Matthew and the gospel is called Matthew, is it the same person? And the answer is, as best as we know, yes. Yes. We're not told exactly who it is who wrote the gospel of Matthew, but evidence points mostly to it being this man who left being a tax collector to follow Jesus. So when we read Matthew's account of this, we're reading his account of his own story. This is a first-person account of what happened according to his view. When we read Mark and Luke's account of this, we're looking at a third person, right? This is someone else looking in at Matthew's story and telling it from their perspective. And the language differs in two ways. First of all, when it says Jesus saw Matthew, Matthew uses the ordinary word for saw, which is horao, all right? in this Greek word, in this Greek language. And it simply means what we mean when we say, hey, I saw it, right? So I see the speaker and I see the keyboard and I see you people and I see the balcony, right? It doesn't mean anything except that I saw it. And that's what Matthew says, right? But Luke uses a different word, thoraomai, which means he looked intently at Matthew. He was, had his eyes fixed on Matthew because he wanted to do something. There was intention behind it, and he saw something he wanted to accomplish with what he was seeing, okay? Now, keep that in mind for a minute. Now, I want to explain to you the second difference in language. In both of the other accounts besides Matthew, if you read it, it says that Levi was sitting at this tax collector's table, and in Matthew's account, it says that Matthew is sitting at this tax collector's table. It's not two different people. It's one person who was named Levi that then got renamed when he became a disciple. Jesus does that every once in a while. He did it to Peter, who was Simon, but now he's known as Peter. Now he does it to Matthew, who is Levi, and now he has become Matthew. Matthew actually means gift of Yahweh, right? So he gave Matthew this new name. So when Matthew is telling his own story, he uses the name Matthew, his Jesus-given name, where everybody else uses his original name that he actually had when he was sitting at the table. Now, the reason I mention those two differences is because I think both of them point to the fact that there is an amazing transformation that has gone on in Matthew's life, and these differences show that. Because first of all, that word saw, that Jesus saw Matthew. So Matthew, when he records it, he says, nothing special. There's nothing special about me. I was just sitting at the table. It was all about Jesus, right? That's how he views his story. Whereas Mark and Luke say, no, no, no. Jesus saw something there. It was very intent. There was some intention in what he was doing because he knew he was going to call him. 
And then the second difference is the fact that even though this event occurred before Matthew's transformation, and that's why Luke and Mark use the term Levi, for Matthew, he's still Matthew, and he's not going back to being Levi. So even though he's telling this story after the transformation, and it actually occurred before the transformation, he doesn't want anything to do with Levi because he has a new name and he has a new life. Jesus has changed his life dramatically, and it shows through in just the language that he uses in this story of giving all praise to God. So it's an amazing little story of Matthew's calling, but we still have to remember that he's a tax collector, right? He's a tax collector. And so this was stunning in, uh, for almost everybody who's watching this. There's a historian named Alfred Edersheim who writes quite a bit about Jewish history during the time of Jesus. And he writes a lot about tax collectors. First of all, he lets us know that there are two kinds. There's the gabai, that's one of the terms used for the first type of tax collector, the gabai, which is the ordinary tax collector. So he taxes things like income and land and what they call poll tax or registration tax. I love the name of this tax collector, right? That in Greek, they're called the goodbyes. Because what happens when you pay your taxes? Well, you give your money to the government and you say, goodbye. <laughs> it's not, not yours anymore. This money is gone. It's for the government use. So the first type of tax collector is the ordinary type called the goodbye. But there's a second type. And they were called the mochas. And the mochas had much more... Uh, latitude in what they could tax. In fact, they could decide on the spot what they were going to tax. So they would tax things like uh, boat docking fees and import duties and tolls and things like that. Um, and they could even say, if a fisherman is out on his boat and he's fishing, they could say, well, I'm going to tax your boat. And then when he comes in, they see the load of fish. He says, well, I'm going to tax that as income. And by the way, you're using the dock, so there's a docking fee attached to that. They even had the right uh, to open personal correspondence, like letters, and see if there's any kind of business going on in the letter that they could tax. Now, you also had two different types of mochas. So you had the goodbyes and the mochas, but of the mochas, you had two different types. You had what they called the great mochas, which are basically at the top of the pyramid with a bunch of little guys working for them. So they didn't actually sit at the tax desk, right? They had these other guys do it so they could hide their anonymity a little bit because everybody hated tax collectors, right? And they just fed off of everybody on the top. Then you had the small mochas that actually sat at the desk to tax people, right? Well, guess which one of those Matthew was? Well, he was a small mocha. Right? He was a small mocha sitting at the tax collector's desk. And Edersheim says that the goodbyes were um, hated. The mochas, the great ones, were hated even more. But the small mochas were despised, absolutely despised the most. And that was Matthew. But Jesus calls this man into his discipleship, into his group. So... You've got some shock going through lots of people in this. The first shocker has to be with the disciples, right? Whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you doing here? <laughs> no, 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 not that guy. You're calling that guy to be part of us? 
So we're going to be hanging out with that. We don't even talk with this guy. We avoid eye contact with this guy. When we see him sitting at the desk, we'll go the long way around the city and come in a different way. You can't call this guy to be a disciple and hang out with us, right? So you got this shock going on probably with the disciples. And then the second shocker is actually Matthew. Matthew. Think about it. There's absolutely no hesitation. There's no indication of hesitation anyway in the story. It says, Jesus called Matthew, come be my disciple, come and follow me. And he gets up just like that and follows him. Now, that may be true for other disciples too, but nobody had to sacrifice the material wealth that Matthew did among those other 11 disciples, right? These were poor people. Some of them were poor fishermen, whatever. And they had to sacrifice too, but Matthew had to sacrifice an enormous amount if you think materially and financially that he was walking away from, and he didn't even hesitate. But he followed Jesus. So at the very beginning of this event, Jesus has primed the community for who he is. I'm not the Messiah that you thought I was. I'm the Messiah of Micah 6.8. I'm the Messiah who does justice, who loves kindness, who walks humbly with my God. That's the Messiah I am. Well, then we have him sitting in the house. He's in the house, in Matthew's house, with all these people there. And this is where, by example, as well as by word, by declaration, he says this is who he is and this is what his mission is. So he's sitting in this crowd of people in Matthew's house, um, and we're not even sure why all those people are there. It doesn't say, like, Matthew invited them. Maybe he did. Maybe they just showed up. Maybe they did this all the time. But it says, it labels them as all tax collectors or sinners. Tax collectors or sinners. So remember the poor disciples. They're already shocked that he called one tax collector. Now they're sitting in a house, and that's all they have. So I was kind of trying to picture this what they were feeling, the awkwardness they were feeling while they're in this house. And I'm kind of picturing, you know, Peter and Andrew going to the buffet line with a couple other bookies, and maybe Philip goes up to the bar and he asks for a Sprite, you know, but two women come out who are clad in the way that they want men pay attention, one on his right, one on his left, and everybody else is a goodbye or a mocha, right? So they're all sitting in this, and they're trying to discover what is it that's going on here, and what is Jesus really trying to do? And that's when the Pharisees show up, and they see this happening. And so if they're too chicken to talk to Jesus directly, I don't know, you know, but they start complaining to his disciples, saying, why does your master eat with these kind of people? That's terrible. That's unclean. He can't eat with these kind of people. Now, maybe they did want Jesus to hear and said it loud enough, but at any rate, he starts, um, he responds to them. But before I talk to you about what he responded with, let me remind you who the Pharisees were. We're not talking about really, really bad people, right? We're talking about middle or upper class Jewish followers who are very faithful Jewish followers, keeping the letter of the law, dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. They're doing everything they thought they should. Now, that doesn't excuse them from missing the main point. They were missing the main point, and so Jesus had to bring them back to tell them. But this is who they were, and then Jesus answers them in their complaint, and this is fantastic. Here's his answer. 
It's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. It's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. Amazing, one of the Jesus answers, right? It's not something we would come up with if we heard ourselves being talked about like this, but Jesus comes up with these zingers all the time, right? I mean, I mean, he nails it on the head for a couple of reasons. First of all, I love the metaphor of the physician, right? Because the metaphor of the physician is basically saying uh, is something that we would actually never say to a physician, right? We never say this to a doctor. Like, I don't go to my doctor and say, uh, you know, I'd really like to see you, but you're always hanging out with sick people. You shouldn't hang out with sick people. That's stupid. I don't want to be seen in your office, you know, with a sick bunch of sick people. Start hanging out with health. We would never say this to a real doctor, right? So there's, a, there's this kind of slam of reality that kind of sinks down on everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, God is supposed to help those who are hurting, right? But also with it comes this conviction, this conviction, like how do we treat people that we think are real sinners, you know, different from us, right? How do we treat those people? Are they like COVID? We can't hang out with them, you know, because we'll catch something. And then, of course, the personal conviction when you read this is pretty heavy. I mean, those of us who know Jesus, we have the medication. We have the medication that heals everything. If they have relational troubles or emotional troubles, and certainly if they have spiritual troubles, I mean, Jesus heals all these things. Are we just hanging out with other healthy people who don't need it? Now, it's not that Jesus only hung out, you know, with sinners. He hung out a lot with his disciples. He hung out with his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, okay? But who are we actually hanging out with? Now, that line alone should have been enough to challenge the Pharisees' assumption. But Jesus goes further, and I think he even embarrasses them. He embarrassed the Pharisees by this little phrase, go and learn, go and learn. Like, stop bothering my disciples, go and learn. That's actually a typical phrase that rabbis at that time would use with their students because they made the students learn on their own. If the student would come and say, hey, Rabbi, why does the scripture say this? They would say, well, you study it, you go and learn, and you come back to me why you think the scriptures say this, right? So it's a bit of a rebuke to those who should know what they don't know, but for these Pharisees, it's an absolute frontal assault because they thought they knew everything, right? And that's why they were off track. So he says, go and learn, but what he tells them to go and learn is actually a quote from Hosea in the Old Testament. He gives them a scripture verse from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. And in the New English Version, which we use most of the time in this church, it says this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Steadfast love is what the New English Version says. If you read Matthew's account of what Jesus says, he uses the word mercy. I require mercy and not sacrifice. The New, England, uh, New International Version also uses mercy. The New American Standard, there's lots of translations out there, uses um, compassion. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. 
And all those words are good. Remember, these are just English translations of a single Greek word. And that single Greek word is actually a powerful word that means all these things. It means loving kindness. It means uh, mercy. It means compassion. We are to have all those things, right? We are to have the compassion of the good Samaritan who saw someone who was actually his enemy and had compassion on him regardless. We are to have the mercy of the king who forgave this one of his constituents' great debt just because the constituent asked for it. We are, have, we are to have the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter who plucked Moses from the river and raised this child as her own. In our daily reading that we have, if you're following along, we've been reading about Exodus and Moses. And I'm reminded of the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter at this point, which brings us all back to Micah 6.8. What are the requirements? To do justice, to love kindness, which means love mercy, which means love compassion, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, with all that in mind, remember there are two groups in shock here, right? You have the disciples that are still in shock that they're hanging out with tax collectors, and now one of them has become the inner 12 circle. And we have the Pharisees' shock that Jesus would eat, to these pe- eat with these people, right? And I believe when Jesus said this, go and learn Hosea 6, 6 and what it really means, I think he was speaking to both groups. I think it was intended primarily to the physicians, go and learn this, because this is what you're missing. I think he was also trying to tell his disciples, you're uncomfortable here, but remember, this is why I came. This is why we should all be here. You're being discipled so that you learn this sort of thing. Well, the challenge is for us, of course, go and learn. Go and learn. So what are we supposed to go and learn? Well, we're supposed to go and learn what Hosea 6, 6 tells us. Um, And so what I've done is I'm going to share with you four lessons about God and four lessons about us that I think we can learn from this story as well as from this passage from Hosea. So first about God, what can we learn about God? Well, I think God is uninterested in ceremony without compassion. It's not that he's uninterested in ceremony. It's not that he doesn't care about sacrifice. All of us know that ceremony is important and that baptism is important and attending church is important. And sacrifice, giving, and giving generously is important, right? It's not that those are important, but they don't mean anything to God if there's no compassion attached to them, if there's no mercy, if there's no kindness, if there's no passion attached to the ceremony, right? That's what Micah 6 is about. That's what Hosea 6 is about. And that's what this story in Matthew chapter 9 is about. Secondly, God is available to everyone, even goodbyes and mochas, right? He's available to everyone. And if anyone here, if anyone is watching online and says, yeah, but not me, I'm too far gone, I did this, this can never be forgiven, if anybody's feeling like that, all you have to do is read this story. You're never too far gone. The mochas and the goodbyes thought they were too far gone. These sinners felt that they were too far gone, right? And Jesus is meeting with them personally to tell them this. God is available to everyone. Someone once said, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership 
is the unworthiness of the candidate. And how true that is, right? Thirdly, God provides a complete cure. You know, whatever your problem is, it wasn't that Matthew was, he was marginalized in relationships, but he wasn't marginalized in finances. He had no material needs, right? So kindness is not just pointing at those people who have not the material things we're talking about. It's also pointing about everybody, regardless of what they have. And he provides a complete cure for that. And it could be relational, it could be financial, it could be definitely spiritual, it could be emotional, it could be any of these things. But he's there for all these things. And lastly, probably only intimately, um, it intimates this from the story, is the fact that the fourth lesson is God even pays the bill, right? So Matthew, he didn't tell Matthew, come and follow me after you do this, 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 and jump through these six hoops, right? Come and follow me. I've already paid the price, or in this case, when he's talking to Matthew, I am going to pay the price, right? He always picks up the bill. It's just a matter of responding to who he is. Now, four lessons that we can learn about ourselves from this passage. First is we have to make this whole thing personal, right? So I wrote it down this way. Our mercy is more important than our sacrifice. You know, I think we can see that from the story that um, ceremony without compassion is true, but now we have to internalize it. Now we have to do an introspection, a self-examination. Where am I on this? Do I love kindness? Do I pursue kindness? Am I in pursuit of that? Because that's even primary over anything that I just do as far as ceremony goes. You know, we have to be careful of asserting our own man-made holiness that's outside of God's word. If I do this, 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 and I keep these particular areas, I will be holy. Now, it may be helpful for me to think about that, but if that's where my self-worth is rather than in Jesus, if I'm finding worth in what I'm doing instead of Jesus, then it's wrong, right? And we certainly have to be careful of putting those man-made things on other people, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. And that's what they were being rebuked for. Third, uh, secondly, is just a question. It's a question, but it's a lesson that we should learn. With whom are we spending time? With whom are we spending time? I mean, there's a whole sermon here on who we spend our time with. And like I said earlier, Jesus didn't spend all his time with sinners. But he didn't avoid them either. So with whom are we spending our time? Thirdly, I think loving kindness includes meeting spiritual needs. And I've sort of alluded to this all along the way. I mean, these are a bunch of guys that didn't have material needs, but they had spiritual needs. It's always about sharing Jesus. Yes, we think of kindness and mercy so many times, and rightly so, in meeting the needs of the poor, the hurting, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, these type of things. All that's correct. But it always includes the spiritual. It's never minus that most crucial thing of having people know Jesus, right? These people, tax collectors and sinners, they needed Jesus, And then fourthly, never forget that we walk humbly with our God, right? Walk humbly with our God. They're sinners and we're not? Is that what we're saying? J.C. Riley, an old-time pastor, he's written some commentary, said this to say, 
we shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day when we first believed. No difference. When from when we first believed to the day we die, we're still completely indebted to Christ because we're just a sinner on our own and only Jesus fixed that. So those are some lessons that I think we can learn. If you're looking for something maybe a little bit more practical, here's three next steps for you, okay, from this story. First of all, take a personal inventory concerning kindness. Check yourself. Up the ante. Make a mental note at the end of the day. Hey, did I do any acts of kindness at all? Did I miss opportunities that I could have shown kindness at certain places along the way? We're supposed to love it. That means we're supposed to pursue it. That means it should be in our minds, high in our priorities. So at the end of the day, take a personal inventory on this. Steve Mayer, um, I still miss him. God rest his soul. Member of our church, part of our board. Did so many things for the Lord, affected so many lives. But he had a saying. And he told his kids this like every day. <laughs> Make someone else's day today. That was all. That's all he would say. Make someone else's day today. That's a good rule to live by. Two, identify those in your world that have spiritual needs and begin to pray for them regularly. Do you do that? I do that. I actually do that with my wife. Donna and I have a list, you know. And some of them have material needs, but most of them don't. Some of them are poor, some of them are wealthy. None of that matters. They don't know Jesus. And so we have this list of people that we pray for all the time, right? Begin to pray for them because as you do that, God will give you opportunities. And then thirdly, examine your Christian routines. Avoid ceremony without compassion. You may have a lot of routines, a lot of to-do things that actually help you to keep connected with God. That's great. Just make sure when you do them, they're helping you to grow. They're helping you to stay connected to God, and they're not just something you do. Do they lack passion? I had a, someone back in college that I knew who... Um, you know, was really faithful every morning, spending time with the word and in prayer to God. He would skip it intentionally every so often because he felt like he was so rigid about it that that's where he was finding worth, you know, his value in that. So he would do it just to remind himself, God is still going to be with me today even if I don't do this, right? So examine your Christian routines. Avoid having any that are a ceremony without compassion. Don't stop doing them. Just kind of renew them with a passion and a prayer before God. Let me close with this. I want to close with reading a song uh, written by Casting Crowns. Probably many of you know it. That's called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Listen closely. Jesus, Friend of Sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, Friend of Sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking round, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded, a plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's writing in the sand, make the righteous turn away and stones fall from their hands. Help us to remember we are all the least of thieves. Let the memory of your mercy bring your people to their needs. No one knows what we're for 
only against when we judge the wounded? What if we put down our signs, crossed over the lines, and loved like you did? Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. This section of your word, this calling of Matthew, it changed his life forever and also declared who you are so clearly, Lord. It encourages us, but most of all, it just challenges us. And thank you that your word does that. It doesn't let us just sit idly. It doesn't just let us make make us feel good about ourselves or we did this today and we heard the word of God. But if we're really paying attention, it challenges us. It challenges us to repent. It challenges us to reach out. And in this case, it challenges us to realize who we are in you and that these other people who haven't yet met you but you still love as much as we do are part of the people that we're to love. They're why you came. You didn't come for the healthy. You came for the sick. And now you send us out to be your hands and feet. We are your body. You're our head. We are to lead people who are sick into health. Father, that orientation is hard enough to keep in our heads because we get so self-centered sometimes. But, of course, the power is all on you. We sang earlier, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we ask, Lord, we've heard the conviction of your spirit and your word, but we ask for your spirit to help us to keep that in our mind this week, to help us to take an inventory, to help us to look at our lives, to look at our routines, to look at who we're spending our time with, to see the chances we have to love kindness by showing it to other people. You can do all of that. You're waiting in the wings for us to just come your way. Please, Lord, do that for us so we can honor you and we can be the body you want us to be. We'll praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.